0: There's an individual, his name is uh, Rick Norsegian, and his week changed about three weeks ago. Um, His life actually changed about three weeks ago because he discovered something that he had hidden away for a long time and got out to have it estimated for its worth. Rick is a commercial painter, lives in Pasadena, California, and he likes in his spare time to go to antique shows and to garage sales. On one particular day back in 2000, he was in Pasadena, went to a garage sale, and dickered with the individual who was selling the thing that he wanted that he thought was an antique. It was a a box of collectible photographs, and this box, the, the owner had priced at $75, And he dickered with him to get it down to $45. He took it home and intending to put it in one of his own garage sales to make some money on it and completely forgot about it, shoved it underneath a basement pool table and left it there for years. Some of his friends saw it and pulled it out at the dinner party and started looking through the photos and said, you know, what you have here is pretty valuable you should not treat this so lightly, you should put this in storage. So he opened up a savings account at a particular bank that offered safe deposit boxes with a vault storage area big enough for him to put this box in. This particular box, he realized, probably had way more worth than the $45 he paid for it. So he took these photos that were inside there and the negatives to a historical specialist in photography of early America. Specifically, he discovered that these photos were from 1919 to 1930 of Yosemite National Forest. As he began examining them, he realized, wow, there might be some historicity here that I could get compensated for. Well, he never dreamed that as the specialists looked at them, they needed to authenticate them against original photographs to validate that they really indeed belonged to Ansel Adams. So he took these photographs to the specialist. The specialist got out authentic Ansel Adams photographs and began uh, comparing the cloud formations and the amount of snow on the top of the mountains and authenticated these were indeed the lost photographs from Ansel Adams' fire back in 1940. Everybody thought they had been destroyed. He bought them at a garage sale for $45. He was told they're worth $200 million. Yeah. Now, before you rush out to go to garage sales this morning, and I did see signs out on the road on the way here, it made me think of this. Think if you were the individual who in 1940 bought them. This individual, whom he bought them from, living in Pasadena, California, bought them in 1940 at a warehouse fire sale for 10 bucks. Had no idea what he had been sitting on for 60 years. Now, the end of the article goes on to say, from Rick himself, I don't know where this individual is that I bought them from for $45. I assume if he's alive, he's going to be hunting me down. I would assume he's probably shaking his fist in anger, never knowing that his life could have turned on a dime. His fortunes could have been completely reversed. Our world is full of individuals who look at circumstances like what I just described to you, and determine whether or not it's going to make them angry or it's going to make them full of joy. Depending on how they approach the circumstance is how they approach God the Creator. You and I both know individuals who go through very difficult circumstances and very good circumstances, some who come out on one side shaking their fist at God and others who come out on the other side praising God and glorifying Him, both in the good and in the bad. There's a senator here in the United States from the state of Nebraska who's taking God to court, no joke, because of the way that God has performed throughout humanity. Nebraska State Senator Ernie Chambers has taken his complaints to court. Let me read you the brief from his filing because he's suing God. This is what it says. Senator Chambers sues God for causing, quote, untold death and horror in the form of fearsome floods, horrendous hurricanes, and terrifying tornadoes. Furthermore, God has wrought widespread death and destruction and terrorized millions upon millions of Earth's inhabitants. You'd have to say that Senator Chambers is no fan of God, right? He's choosing to shake his fist at God. How do you win a lawsuit against God? You don't, but it raises an interesting question. If God is all powerful, in control of everything, and he's everywhere, is he responsible for both the good and the bad. That's what we're going to examine this morning as we look at Revelation 16. It speaks specifically to that question. So if you have your Bibles with you, open up them, open them up to Revelation 16 and verse 1. We've been on this journey for quite a while. If you're new to New Hope, we started this Almost a year ago, those who have been in it since the beginning are getting revelation weary and and ready for us to move on to new things, but we're coming into the last few weeks. Specifically, chapter 19 starts with the return of King Jesus to earth, the second coming. Today where we're at, and the reason I say it's dark material, is because this is five of the last seven judgments against planet earth. Next week is the battle of Armageddon. And we'll look at that in depth, but today we're going to look at the five judgments that lead up to the battle of Armageddon. Last week we discovered that God wants glory. God wants his doxa, D-O-X-A. God wants to be magnified. And so we learned in Revelation 15 that God's glory fills the temple completely in heaven. That's how we ended. We see today individuals who refuse to give God glory, but coming out of that temple... Were seven angels, remember that. Seven angels who proceeded forth from the temple, and as they each walked out, God had one of his servants place in their hands a bowl, and in the bowls were the wrath of God. It's called the bowl, B-O-W-L, the bowl judgments. So that's where we're picking up here in Revelation 16 and verse 1. Understand that each angel that you're going to read about has a very specific target. Earth has already experienced the judgments from the trumpets and the seals. Revelation 16, 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshiped his image. Now we see that word that's very familiar again because we learned about it all the way through Revelation. The word loud is the same as the word great. Megas, like megaphone, it means huge voice. And so John hears this huge voice coming out from the temple And it emphasizes the intensity and the magnitude of what's about to happen on planet Earth. Unprecedented in human history. These judgments that are coming forth. So this loud voice specifically is God's voice. As you learned last week in Revelation 15, no man, no person, no being could enter the temple now. Because God's glory had filled the temple. And yet this voice comes out, so we know it's God's voice coming out of the temple. And immediately the first angel responds, and these five judgments you're going to learn about this morning happen in very quick succession, rapidly. So the first angel responds, and he pours out his bowl, and the results are these loathsome and malignant sores. In the Bible, in the New Testament, there are two words in the Greek for evil. Both of the words for evil are used here for loathsome and malignant. The first one that's used is kakos. You see the definition up on the screen. Kakos, this is the definition for it. That which is evil, evildoer, miserable, depraved, or as an object, injurious, bad, and wicked. So kakos, when it's put together with the other word that's used for malignant, and the other words that's used is poineros, means something that is vile. And that's what Scripture says. These sores are vile and malignant, and they can't be cured. So when these three words that are put together for malignant, loathsome, sore, this is something that no medicine can fix. We see an example of this exact same loathsome boil on the Egyptian people back at the time of the plagues on Egypt in the Ten Commandments. Let me take you very quickly up on the screen. You'll see Exodus chapter 9 and verse 8. This is why we studied the Old Testament before we studied the book of Revelation. We took some time to understand how God performed in the time of the Ten Commandments. You see consistency here. Verse 8, Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take for yourself handfuls of soot from a kiln, and let Moses throw it toward the sky in the sight of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and will become boils breaking out with sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from a kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it toward the sky, and it became boils breaking out with sores on man and beast. You're learning about unrelieved physical agony that falls upon everyone who has rejected Jesus Christ, who has followed after the Antichrist. Everyone who has taken the Mark 666 upon their body and has worshipped the image will receive these boils. They'll come upon their body in such a way that they won't be able to function. Imagine boils on your entire body, your heels, your legs, your backside, and your front side. You can't sit. You can't lay, you can't walk. It paralyzes the world. And understand, these come not from God specifically as punishment for sin in general, but because they have rejected Jesus and because they've taken upon themselves the opportunity to worship God's opponent, the Antichrist. So since they take on Antichrist's mark, God gives them his mark. You imagine when the boils begin appearing over the 666 on their hand or on their forehead, and they begin to be disfigured? And immediately the next angel pulls out his bowl. Verse 3 Then the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like blood. It became blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. Part of the devastating effect of these judgments is that they're cumulative. They begin to stack upon each other. So, before the sores can heal, the second angel pours out his bowl into the sea. Very similar again to the first plague in Egypt. God now turns water into blood, just like he did with the Nile River. Oceans cover 70% of the earth's surface. Now here's a qualifier for me, just a little bit of a time out. Many times pastors do themselves great harm by stepping into the world of science and trying to teach on things they know nothing about. So here's my qualifier, all right? I'm going to talk to you about something that's called the red tide just for a minute and you'll understand why. In the first service, there were a few individuals who specialize in biology just like there are in this service. So perhaps, Byron, you'll be able to help me with this word. Or Peter, those of you who have gone through medical school will understand this particular word that's used. Dino, they told me how to pronounce this, dinoflagellate? Close enough? Okay, dinoflagellates are something that's associated with a phenomenon here on planet Earth called the red tide. Now first I'm going to give you a perspective from a theologian and then I'm going to show you an explanation for, from where this red tide actually took place on planet Earth very recently around China. But first, understand this. When the red tide comes upon the ocean, very near shore usually, these dinoflagellates deprive the water of oxygen. So it kills the fish and it kills the plant life. It takes the oxygen column From the water and causes asphyxia. So, first of all, here's the first quote from John Phillips, a theologian who looked upon this setting and said, Perhaps this is what it is. Here's his description In 1949, red tides hit the coast of Florida. First, the water turned yellow, but by midsummer, it was thick and viscous, with countless billions of dinoflagellates, tiny one celled organisms, 60 mile windrows of stinking fish. Fouled the beaches. Much marine life was wiped out. Even bait used by fishermen died upon the hooks. An unchecked population explosion of toxic dinoflagellates would kill all the fish in the sea. I happened to grow up on the west side of Michigan, um, in a little harbor town called Whitehall, north of Muskegon. We have a kill-off that happens almost every year that there's a hard winter in which the little game fish that swim around Lake Michigan called alewifes die sometime in the spring, and they're washed up on the shore. So as a student, I don't know how many of you here are familiar with this smell, but dead fish are horrid. There's nothing like it. It's just rotting flesh. And as a student in school, we were given this out-of-classroom assignment to go out to the beaches and clean the beaches so that the tourists coming over to Lake Michigan wouldn't be offended by the smell of these dead alewifes. How'd you like to sign up for that class assignment? It was just terrible. So you understand this stink that's being described here is horrible. Dead sea life all over the ocean beaches. This next description comes from a government office from the Department Office of Health and Human Services. You'll see the quote on the screen. Red tide is caused by a population explosion of toxic, microscopic plankton, specifically a subgroup known as dinoflagellates. Blooms of poison producing plankton are a phenomenon caused by environmental conditions which promote explosive growth. Now, here's why I wanted you to see it. I'm going to show you two pictures where this just happened within the last few years in China. 75 red tides within a matter of months produced this first image that you're going to see. Dead fish and dead sea life, the plant life, washed up on the shores. This was an area of 75,000 square kilometers that the red tide covered. This is what the red tide actually looks like. Is that not amazing? Now, understand, church, I'm not here to suggest to you that God needs to use natural occurring circumstances in the water to bring about a miracle. What you're reading about is the supernatural activity of God. Whether he chooses to use things that are already in nature or he just causes the water to turn red and become blood-like, that's up to him. But there are certainly descriptions here, but you understand very closely that the Scripture says it it became like the blood of a dead man. What's the blood of a dead man? Coagulated. Thick. And that's the graphic description we have here from Scripture. So, first we've got the sores appearing on people's bodies. Now we've got the ocean life wiped out. And the stench from the decaying bodies is unimaginable. So, the next angel comes now very rapidly, verse 4. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judged these things. For they have poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. So we see what happened to the Nile River, fresh water happening again here in the time of tribulation in which fresh water is again being turned into sour, undigestible product. Now stop and think about this, church. Our world, nations of our world, go to war over oil, a natural product that we need to survive. There are battles waged. How much more so when water is deprived of the world, fresh drinking water. Now, Scripture says very clearly here that he went after the rivers and the fresh water supply. It doesn't say storage tanks. Back in Exodus, it says God actually tainted the the storage tanks, the cisterns and the wells. But here we see that the river's and the springs, so perhaps there will still be bottled water. Perhaps water towers around city will still contain fresh drinking water but you know it's going to run out and people will become vicious you have to look at these circumstances boils on the body global destruction of the sea no more fresh drinking water and say how could a god of mercy and grace bring this about How could he do this? You can see why people begin shaking their fist and saying, you're not righteous. And others would say, you're righteous and your judgments are true. And so this angel defends God. That there is an angel of the waters just fascinates me to no end. That's what Scripture calls him, the angels of the waters. The angel of the waters speaks up and defends God's righteousness. And he says something that's just amazing about God. We're going to look at that in just a minute, but look specifically at what he declares. God is unquestionably righteous, and he's the Holy One. Is your God not righteous, church? Absolutely. David declared it. Abraham declared it. Look with me up on the screen. Abraham said it first of all. Genesis 18, 25, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly and then David repeated it, Psalm nineteen nine. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. So the angel tells us why God taints the waters. Look what he says. He said, they poured out, who? The blood of the saints and the prophets. They executed and murdered believers in Jesus Christ. Now, we learned about that earlier in Revelation, that during the martyrdom time, that there will be mass execution of Christians. But going all the way back to the time of Christ, since the time of Christ, believers in Jesus have been executed. So this angel cries out, they poured out the blood of saints and prophets mercilessly. And so now we see this really odd statement. An angel says, they deserve it. You ever think of an angel saying something like that? I mean, it really does kind of set you back. They deserve it. They're getting their just reward. I want you to understand what the word deserve means. It's the word axios. Look with me up on the screen at the definition. In the sense of to weigh worthy, due, reward, deserving or suitable of weight, of worth. It has its roots in ancient days, When the greatest insult you could say to someone is this, you have been weighed and measured and found wanting. That's the word axios. You have been axios. You have been weighed and you've come up short. So the angel cries out, they axios it. They're worthy of it. They're going to get exactly what they deserve. Why? Because they've killed God's saints. They've rejected God and stiff-armed him. So we see this righteousness of God being defended. Why specifically? God is just because he's angered by sin and, don't stop there, because he does something about it. It's not just enough to be irritated and angered by misbehavior, but to actually take action. So consider this with me. What if in the next election you appointed a judge who had the ability to sit on a bench and determine whether or not someone faced prison time? And in that election you have put the person on the bench that you believed would do the best job. Person's elevated to the position of judge and every single individual that they bring before them, they say, Uh no, we're going to let you go. I know you did a horrible thing, but you're gone. Would you not want to retract your vote? You want a judge who carries out justice, So in the case of a judge who constantly just winks at sin, you'd say, he's not righteous. But in the case of a judge who deals with sin and takes action against it, you would say, he's just and he's righteous and he's true. So that's what this angel is declaring. Your judgments are righteous because they are axios. They are worthy. They deserve it. I'll tell you what really struck me this week as I'm working through this text. I deserve it too. I deserve the wrath of God, just like you do, but for the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Were it not for God offering his son to buy us back and die for our sins on the cross, we'd be axios. We'd be done. That's why the angel cries this out. Your judgments are righteous and true. But for you and I, but for the grace of God. So verse 8, the fourth angel appears on the scene. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has the power over these plagues. And they did not repent so as to give him glory. And did you notice that the first three angels were on the earth They carried out their actions and their judgments against planet earth. This fourth one carries it out against the sun. Fourth day of creation, God said he would give us a greater light and a lesser light. The greater light to rule the day, lesser light to rule the night. The greater light, the sun that's been given to us for a blessing, God now uses for judgment. He intensified the heat and causes a searing heat that exceeds anything in human history. One of his judgments is to turn the sun against man. Now stop and think with me. This would cause a searing heat if it lasts for as long as we believe it to, a melting of the polar ice caps. Think about the loss of stability in your world if water levels around the world begin to rise. I'll put that piece together for you next week when we look at the Battle of Armageddon and the massive earthquake that takes place on the earth as the last judgment. But when you consider the rising waters and the shaking of the earth, you begin to see God restoring the world back to its original state in the place that it was at creation. So with this searing heat, scorching on the sores that are already on the body, complete death of the oceans, a putrid stench of dead sea life, no fresh water to drink, And we see the reactions of the people. Think with me back to the time when we studied the book of Exodus last year. We saw Pharaoh in the very beginning when Moses first came to him and God turned the water in the Nile River to blood. Pharaoh repented, didn't he? He turned to Moses and said, Okay, I'll let your people go. Just turn the water back. Eventually, Pharaoh got to the point where he began shaking his fist at God. He became so irritated, he actually blasphemed the name of God. Eventually, he cursed God, and then he went to war against the people of God. That's the same progression of the human heart that you see here in the book of Revelation. We are very consistent throughout time. And so someone whose conscience is so seared, they begin to shake their fist at God, and that's why this verse ends this way they did not repent so as to give him glory. The word we looked at last week, they refused to give God doxa, where we get the word doxology from. They gave him no praise. They refused to turn their heart. When circumstances get hard enough, people will choose to do one of two things. It's always the same case. They either turn to God and worship Him, or they turn away from God and reject Him. You see individuals here still experiencing God's grace, trying to pull them back, but they're stiff-arming Him and saying, no way, and the reverse is true. It's the most blatant example of hard hearts in all of human history. They are absolutely refusing God, and so it ends up by saying, they blaspheme the name of God. Verse 10. Then the fifth angel, and this is the last one we're going to do today. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Just like in Egypt, God reaches over and turns off the lights. Go back and read Exodus later today. You'll see it's very consistent. The same way God used the plagues to try and call people back to himself, he's using again here in Revelation. Only this time, it's global. It's the entire surface of the earth. How do I know that? It says the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. We discovered earlier in Revelation that the throne represents the global surface, his entire kingdom. Everything that the Antichrist will rule over He will be a world dictator and his kingdom goes black. And just like with Pharaoh, the beast will be just as helpless as anyone else against the power of God. Absolutely no control. Jesus said that in the last days, at the end of the tribulation, the lights would go out. Look with me up on the screen. Mark chapter 13, verse 24. But in those days... After that tribulation the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in heavens in the heavens will be shaken So picture this church you're covered with sores you have no fresh water the sea life around you stinks to high heaven it's gone from searing extreme heat to freezing cold, complete complete blackness. Scripture says in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, that darkness was on the face of the land for three months. I have no idea how long God's going to do it here. He doesn't choose to tell us. People will be groping around in complete blackness. The way I can best help you understand this is if you've ever gone to a cave And you've gone with a tour guide down into the bottom of the cave, and they turn the light off just so you can feel it. If you ever get a chance, sign up for it. Go down into the bottom of the cave if you're not claustrophobic and you think you can stand it. When the tour guide reaches and turns the switch off, you see nothing. It's not like the light's going off in this room, you can't see your hand in front of your face. You can feel the heat of your hand near your nose. You see nothing. And Scripture describes this as a thick, felt blackness, a blackness that is present around you. What you're seeing here is a preview of hell. Did you know that's one of the characteristics of hell? That it's completely, eternally black. This is what it says. Matthew chapter 8, this is Jesus talking, verse 12. But the sons of the kingdom, meaning the kingdom of Satan, will be cast out into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Same imagery that's used for us. There's a preview of hell. So those who reject Christ will spend eternity in darkness. And God's using these plagues to say, pay attention. Look at me. Understand, you need to repent. It's unnecessary for people to go to hell. Hell was prepared for Satan. That's what Scripture says. It was prepared for Satan and his angels, not for man. So God is saying, pay attention and come back. But what's their response? It says they gnawed their tongues for the pain and they blasphemed the God of heaven. They refuse to turn from their ways. So I have a question for you. How do you know when someone is actually repenting, when they're really turning away from their behavior? Scripture gives us two identifiers, two specific words that we can see. I'm going to put them up on the screen. One is Hebrew and one is Greek. These are the words that are used in the Bible for repenting from sin. Nakam is the first one. Properly, to sigh, to breathe strongly, by implication to be sorry, comforting self. Metnaeo is a Greek word, to think differently, to reconsider morally, to feel a compunction. They both mean this. I was going this way, and I'm turning, and I'm going this way. That's the word repent. It means to turn, to go in an opposite direction. So instead of going away from God, they're supposed to be drawn to God. What does your text say? The same as mine. They blasphemed the God of heaven. So we can actually measure repentance. You can tell if someone is sincerely repenting because they're turning away from their previous behavior and going to new behavior. But Scripture says, This is the last reference to repentance in all of the Bible. You will never see the word repent again in the Bible. This is the last time. It's the end of the age of grace. The plague you're going to see next week, the judgment, is the battle of Armageddon and a massive global earthquake that shakes the planet to its core because the age of grace has ended I often marvel personally at situations like Pharaoh and individuals we each know who continue to shake their fist at God, wondering how in the world do they get to the point where they stiff-arm God? Very clearly, what individuals have done over a period of time is they have seared their conscience. It's easier and easier the next time and the next time and the next time and eventually, the heart is so hard, the natural response is to shake the fist at God. David recognized, after he had committed a really egregious sin, King David recognized that there was one way to get back to a right replace right relationship with God, a right place in his heart. He left a record for us of how to do that. I'm going to take you back to that text. This is how we're going to close out today. Psalm 51. This is what David said after he had committed the worst sin of his life. And he recognized he needed to get back to God. This is what his cry was. Psalm 51, verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. This verse applies to both believers and non-believers, those who are interested in coming into relationship with God because of this very first word. See, there's no garage sale hearts with God. You can't get a used heart. David went to the creator and said, "God, create The word that's used there is actually give me a new heart. I want a heart transplant. Create in me a clean heart, something completely fresh, a brand new beginning. Next stage of it, I want to renew your spirit within me. So bring that spirit, bring that Holy Spirit back. Give me that sense of conviction. Restore to me what? The joy of my salvation. Because it's a joyful thing to be saved. And then notice what he does the next step. He says the last thing, then I will teach transgressors your ways. So you can't talk to people about God until you're right with God, until you've got your heart in the right place. So David recognized there's a stage process to this. And the ultimate stage is saying to God, I messed up. I need your forgiveness. And the forgiveness comes in Jesus Christ alone. Absolutely no other way. Romans 8, one. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the promise to us, church. We will not face judgment if we belong to Jesus Christ. We will escape the wrath to come. I want you to stand up with me right now and I will remind you of a truth as we close. Your God... Creator of the universe has never lied to you. God has never lied to me. Everything that He said He would do in the Old Testament, that He has either done or will do, will be accomplished. So the revelation is no different. If God said He will do it, it will happen. Your choice is, do I want to be aligned with God or do I want to be aligned with the Antichrist? That's the question you leave here with this morning and and the issue of repentance comes down to one key issue. Do you believe indeed that God is a righteous judge? The word righteousness is what we landed on this morning. If he is indeed righteous everything he does is just and true, then he has the right to judge your life. And he will one day determine whether or not you aligned yourself with Christ or you aligned yourself with the things of the world. That's why I said this is heavy. This is dark material. But it's true. God does not lie. So for those of you who, like me, name the name of Christ, I want you to do one thing this week. This week, identify someone in your own personal world that you would feel comfortable with inviting to church next week. Because as we talk about the Battle of Armageddon, it will illuminate people's minds in such a way that they have to do something with the information. So that's the task I lay upon you. And I will prayerfully prepare for that time. So as a church, let's gather together right now and pray. God, men and women, children, students in this room who make up New Hope Church have sat through this teaching and asked you at the beginning to apply it to our hearts in such a way that we would know that your Holy Spirit was speaking to us. So Father, whatever truth they're taking out of the room with them this morning, I ask that you would apply it deeply to their life. Cause it, Father, to not be something that's easily forgotten over coffee out in the atrium or getting into the car but to be a truth that stays with us throughout the week so that we will remember, for one, to give you glory, and for two, Father, to recognize you are righteous and you are true. Everything you do is truth. God, we declare this in the name of Jesus Christ, our soon-coming King. Amen. Have an excellent week.